Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Sam Pazuki, who is the Vice President, Corporate Development and Investor Relations at Oceana Gold. Um, for those that don't know who Oceana, uh, Oceana Gold is, they're a multinational gold producer with operating development and exploration experience in the Philippines, New Zealand and the US. I wanted to get Sam on the podcast and um, what we're going to talk about is some of the M&A activities that are happening in the, in the gold space um, and some of the challenges around ESG um, and especially obviously within the, the current climate that we're in at the moment. Um, so let's get straight into this, and I want to welcome Sam to uh, to the podcast. How are you doing, Sam? Yeah, not too bad, Rob. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Appreciate you uh, taking your time to uh, to conduct this. Um, so, as we always start off, just wondered if you can give the audience a little bit of background about yourself um, from when you from when you say graduated to your to your current role where you are now, and then I've got some uh, questions I want to uh, ask you around. Um, ESG and M&A. Sounds great, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation to be able to talk about what I think are some pretty exciting things that are happening uh, in the sector uh, and actually even more broadly in the investment community. We, we see, have seen a lot of um, different M&A transactions and ESGs are very topical as well. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here to, to speak specifically on how that sort of translates in the mining industry. Uh, in terms of my background, I graduated with an engineering degree uh, from a school uh, about an hour away from Toronto called McMaster University. Um, I went into the oil and gas industry straight out of university and worked for a, uh, I guess, basically the largest pipeline company, at least in North America, called Enbridge, uh, in various roles uh, with them. Uh, including business development. Uh, as part of a, a small team, we were mandated with growing a renewable energy business for Enbridge, which was brand new. Uh, their bread and butter is oil pipelines and gas distribution, and they were looking to expand their portfolio, add a third leg to the stool uh, in renewable energy. And so we were pretty active, especially during the global financial crisis, in acquiring different wind and solar assets. Uh, looking at different technologies, including carbon capture, sequestration. Uh, so it was part of all that for Enbridge. Uh, I left uh, shortly thereafter, after we made a few deals. Uh, I think uh, in the time that I was there, Enbridge had done a couple billion dollars of transactions. Um, today, I think that number has grown to seven or eight uh, billion dollars of transactions. So certainly a meaningful part of their business. Uh, from there, I moved on to consulting, um, working as in the advisory practice with Ernst & Young, uh, mainly focused on oil and gas and uh, mining companies. So that was sort of my first exposure to the mining industry, is helping a number of different mining companies on different projects that they had, um, whether it was corporate development related, uh, transactional related, or project management. 
And my largest client was BHP, uh, helped set, set up the Janssen project for them, uh, the big potash project in yeah. Sask uh, Saskatoon. As a Canadian, I almost screwed up the pronunciation of that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that was uh, an interesting uh, project and still ongoing, obviously, today. Um, Potash not doing so well, but the project is certainly robust. Uh, from there, I joined Oceana Gold, um, was hired to be their lone employee in Canada, and um, happy or, or maybe unhappy to say that I'm still the only employee here in Canada uh, in the corporate development investor relations function. And Oceana Gold's uh, a mid-tier company. It was a lot smaller than, than what it is today. So we've certainly grown the company in the last eight years. Uh, we have uh, emerged as one of the uh, premier intermediate gold companies in the space, producing anywhere between 500, 600,000 ounces of gold uh, with four operations. Uh, so it's been an exciting eight years at Oceana, and uh, we certainly have a very bright future as well. Yeah, certainly. Um how how's the industry i mean obviously you started off in uh, oil and gas and you moved over to mining how was that transition and what are the major differences and obviously over your career obviously those advances have have gone on but what what are the main differences do you see coming from the mining uh, sorry coming from the oil and gas into the mining industry yeah, I've got to be careful what I say here. I, <laughs> yeah. I can offend people on both sides of the uh, the different. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when I was hired to join Oceana, um, the CEO at the time had uh, had asked me a similar question, and I responded by saying that it's to me it seems like it's it's the same industry, uh, to which uh, I almost was not the successful candidate for the <laughs> for the role. I I mean I've learned quite a bit in the mining industry. Uh, but I do believe they're similar. I mean, it's resource extraction. Um, you've, you've got a resource in the ground and you're digging it up. Uh, in oil and gas, there's, I guess there would be less sunk cost because the drilling you do, you almost know immediately if you have something. Uh, you do need to do a bit more testing and drilling to see what sort of economic uh, um, reservoir you do have, whether it's oil uh, or gas. With mining, and this is, you know, I'm a patient person, but this is the frustrating thing about metallic mining is that you'd have to, you have to drill for five to 10 years, and maybe you might have something that's economic. You know, there's no assurances around that either, but you've spent a lot of money and you've spent a lot of time and effort to, uh, to see whether or not you have a resource that's economic. Um, after you've gotten through that sort of initial phase, I mean, there's some of the risks are still there in terms of technical risks, uh, social risks. Uh, we don't, we're not finding major gold deposits um, you know, in our backyard, you know, for me here in Toronto or, or in major centers, you're finding them in, in places that are socially complex for the most part. And a lot of the easy deposits have already been discovered um, and have, are in the process of being mined or have been mined. So, you know, some of the behemoth deposits in Nevada have been discovered and it's, it's, an, it's a good jurisdiction to be in and, and it's not um, that complex from a social perspective. So oil and gas have to, they have the same challenges um, from a social perspective. And one of the things that, you know, we're going to be discussing is around ESG, which does apply to both of our industries as well. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of similarities. Yes, there are some technical nuances that are, um, you know, again, different between the two sectors. Um, but I think we're sort of in the same family of, of industries. Yeah. I'm going to ask one more question around this. What can the mining industry learn from the oil and gas industry 
Is there anything, I suppose, glaring that you think they could, uh, that could be improved? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Rob. Uh, one of my first observations when I came into the mining industry was I, I found that the mining companies sort of promoted themselves on an individual basis as opposed to a sector basis. Uh, whereas in oil and gas, you know, there are different groups that are quite vocal. Uh, companies are represented through those groups. You know, for example, in Canada, you have the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, CAP. And they promoted the oil industry. You know, they defended the oil sands. I believe they continued to do that, as well as the pipelines. And they represented the interests of the industry. And it wasn't just individual companies trying to all do the same things. I mean, that's still required. I mean, companies are still required to promote themselves and, and promote their industry with their stakeholders. But you do need one sort of overarching body to represent the entire industry. The, the, the mining industry hasn't really had the same sort of penetration or the same association. There are some groups that are becoming more popular as the mining industry companies are, are learning that we can be stronger together than you know, working in our silos. So in the gold industry, for example, the World Gold Council is emerging as, as a pretty dominant voice for the sector. Uh, the member uh, companies, of which Oceana Gold is one, is, is you know, promoting the industry. We're not being shy about all the good things that we are doing. It is a risky business. Uh, you know, we do have an impact to the environment. And, but we, as an as a industry, are creating a lot of benefits for um, a lot of poor countries, poor jurisdictions, for, for all jurisdictions, creating jobs. And at the same time, we're managing our risks associated with the environment and also the social risks. And so we're doing these things every single day, and that's why we're in business. And now we've got a group that can actually be out there and promote the good things the industry is doing. Yeah. Um, I just want to make uh, one note that I have interviewed someone from the World uh, Gold Council. So uh, I'm not sure what episode that is, but if the audience wants to uh, find out more about what the World Gold Council does um, and their function and what they're looking to achieve, then um, do scroll through the episodes of the podcast because I, uh, I have got an interview with one of the senior, senior guys at uh, the World Gold Council. So... Um, Going on to the questions now, um, after a few years of sort of limited M&A activities in the, the gold sector, um, we've sort of seen a flurry of M&A activity over the past sort of six months. What do you say is the driving the increased M&A &A activity at the moment? What, what kind of things do you see the reason behind that? Yeah, so another great question, Rob. I mean, we... When I, when I joined the industry, the gold mining industry specifically in 2012, uh, there, there had been a flurry of M&A deals. Uh, it seemed like transactions were happening uh, quite frequently, almost sort of in a left, right and center situation. Uh, but as the gold price uh, came off or fell off a cliff rather in 2013, we did see M&A transactions really dry up. We also did see that a lot of the gold companies were taking major write downs on some of the transactions that they did make prior to the, the fall in the gold price. And so they got into a situation where they were basically in a penalty box. Uh, shareholders were frustrated with the major write downs and it started at the very top with, with some of the major gold companies. And so they, they, we sort of stayed in this situation where we were uncertain where the gold price was going. A lot of 
smaller companies that were that had made discoveries and advanced them along in a higher gold price were no longer economic. Uh, so they were no longer worth investing in uh, or acquiring. So you know the, the biggest driver was that shareholders just did not want to see any uh, M and A. They they wanted companies to focus on their balance sheets. Uh, there were stress balance sheets because of the debt that was taken on board by a lot of these companies. And so we went through this lull period. And as the gold price has been creeping back up, um, you know, we've seen an, uh, an increase again in the, um, in the number of M&A deals, particularly in the last year or so. I mean, there's been a flurry of deals in the last year. Um, and that's, I, I attribute it mainly to balance sheets being fixed, shareholders being more amenable to doing deals. And the fact that there's way too many gold companies to begin with. So consolidation, which has been talked about for years, as long as I've been in the industry, um, is something that's been required and it's just only happening now. Um, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the, I guess, money that's been going into the gold industry from an investment perspective, from investors, uh, has been into larger in index type of products or ETFs. Um, in those cases, um, size matters. So some of the transactions that we've seen in the last, um, I'd say, six to eight months, uh, there aren't, you know, from, from my vantage point, there aren't a lot of synergies uh, other than scale. So the companies are getting together to become a much larger company, uh, which would then put them on, on different um, or new index funds um, and also attract investors that have market cap thresholds. So as you get bigger, then you attract a larger pool of investors who won't invest below a certain market cap. So as these companies have gotten bigger, more money has flowed into them. Uh, with the gold industry becoming more attractive to investors, I mean, the gold price is, is above $1,700. Uh, there's been a lot of economic stimulus in the last couple months uh, in the short period of time. I mean, it's unprecedented how much money that's been printed globally uh, and in the U.S., uh, so that's that's all positive for gold. And you're finding that generalist investors who up until more recently have stayed away from the gold industry are coming back into it. And where they go into first is the large cap gold stocks. Um, yeah. So there is, you know, there is that benefit in terms of being larger. And that's why I think that's one of the motivators for, for some of these transactions. Um, but I'm not sure if that's sort of the, the right thing to do over a long term. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned about um, the economy and a lot of the governments around the world are stimulating the economy by printing more and more money. And how long that's going to continue, we don't know. But I, I'd say it will be continuing for, for a while. Will that have a big effect on more and further M&A activity? Um, because obviously more money is going to become ready available. And will it then go to into sort of gold because it is seen as a uh, um a a i suppose a value of of currency or uh, value of money yeah i do believe that we should expect to see uh, continued m a activities in in the sector um with the increase in the number of uh, funds that are going into the gold industry or the amount of capital going into the industry um that does help a lot of the junior gold companies out. Um, it's been fairly dry for them for the last several years, and it's still it, it's still fairly quiet for them right now. I mean, they they need to raise capital to continue exploration programs. And in the last two years, you've seen corporates, including ourselves, 
um, be the lenders to these junior gold companies. Um, if you look back, you know, people, um, you know, some of the experts in the industry, I know Gold Corp was, uh, who was acquired by Newmont was quite vocal about this and that we had seen peak gold uh, in 2012, I believe, uh, was when they, when they said we were there. Um, so you've seen uh, a reduction in the amount of drilling that's gone on to find gold, more gold deposits. Um, now that the industry is sort of back in favor and, and there's an increased flow of funds, then that money can go into exploration. It can go into juniors that can go and drill and, and discover new ore bodies. And eventually these companies are going to be acquired. So in the near term, from that perspective, you, you won't see a lot of M&A activities. But for the reasons that I mentioned before, in terms of uh, just having scale, uh, you'll probably see pro some more consolidation in the industry. Um, MOEs, you know, we've seen one just recently with um, with uh, SSR mining and Alasser. Uh, those are very difficult to do, but those are necessary for our industry. Um, again, there's too many gold companies out there, and um, you know, I think where it makes sense, MOEs is is something that I know shareholders would would welcome. Yeah, and and speaking obviously about Oceana Gold, um, do you see yourself yourselves as sort of participating in more M&A activity? Yeah, so Oceana... And, it, and, I was yeah. Just, and is there a particular focus as to what you would look at, whether it's a certain jurisdiction, um, particular types of companies as well? Yeah, so Oceana Gold um, has basically been formed through M&A. Uh, we had a project um, that we were building when I joined in the Philippines called the Dipio. Uh, which generated a lot of cash, um, still within our portfolio. Um, so then 2015, when gold hit its lowest point, and as I mentioned before, you know, our peers in the industry were told by the shareholders no more M&A, or they had distressed balance sheets, they were hiding underneath their desks. We were actually quite acquisitive. So we did two major transactions in 2015, um, which uh, one was Remarco, which brought the Hale gold mine into our portfolio. That's, that's the one in South Carolina. And we bought the Wahi gold mine from Newmont. Uh, majors were selling assets at the time to, again, to pay down some debt and repair some distressed balance sheets. Uh, so we acquired that from Newmont and we've created significant value for shareholders through that acquisition. Um, I mean, that period basically created a bunch of new gold companies, including Northern Star and Evolution. So the Australians really benefited from asset sales in Australia. Um, and again, we benefited from, from that as well. So as, as we sort of went from that low point in the gold industry to a rising one in 2016, um, we were focused more on building hail at that time. So we bought a project that we, we completed the build, brought, put that into operation in 2017. Um, and through the, I mean, the, the deals that we did, not only brought good assets into the portfolio, but gave us some very strong exploration ground. So where our focus has been has been on exploration. And so we've drilled extensively to, uh, to prove up and build out and expand resources uh, in New Zealand, in South Carolina, um, to optimize the projects we have and expand them from where they were. So our focus has been organic growth in the last few years. Um, we have looked at doing MOEs as well. Um, you know, we do consider ourselves to be shareholder friendly. We, we, uh, make decisions for the long term. We want to create value for shareholders, uh, manage the things that are in our control. Uh, but MOEs are very difficult to do, as I mentioned. 
Um, it's, it's difficult to get two different companies, you know, with egos involved and, and social differences and cultural differences. It's, it's very difficult to do, but we are certainly open to doing MOEs. Yeah. Uh, so today, I mean, we, we would, again, we would consider that, uh, but we're more focused on internal in terms of advancing our organic growth projects than looking external for opportunities. And in a higher gold price, Rob, everything becomes expensive. So we prefer to, to buy low and then sell high. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, despite the uh, emergence of COVID-19 um, and increased uh, validity, uh, validity in the, the stock market, um, obviously ESG remains prevalent in the investment community. Um, from your experience, do you see investors placing greater importance on ESG? performance when evaluating sort of investment opportunities? Yeah, so ESG has been the buzzword for the last uh, year, two years or so. We've, we've heard yeah. a lot about ESG and, and um, you know, I thought with COVID you might see a reduction in, in how much people sort of emphasize ESG, but it remains as strong as it was, um, you know, six months ago or before the COVID crisis uh, hit the world. Um, ESG has been around for years, though. You know, I, I sat on a panel last year in London Minds and Money, and I commented to the audience that, you know, in the last few years, we, we hear about ESG, but it's nothing new. Yeah. They used to be called different things before. It, used, it was corporate social responsibility years ago. Yeah. And then people started dubbing it sustainability. And now we're calling it ESG. <laughs> and I think part of that is that we're getting a better understanding of what, you know, CSR and sustainability really are. What are the key drivers for um, you know, that sort of area of, of the, um, yeah, the world with respect to companies, you know, what, what, what is it, what's the focus on the environment, it's on social, it's on governance. Um, so, you know, for our industry, it's very important. And, you know, Oceana has been in business for 30 years because we do ESG the right way. Mm. Um, as a resource extraction company, whether it's in mining or oil and gas, if you're not doing ESG well, you're not operating a sustainable business. So we do that um, regardless of, of what people are saying external in terms of, um, you know, whether it's in investors or NGOs who talk about uh, ESG, we're doing it regardless. Uh, where, where it's important for us and investors is we want to make sure that the good stuff that we're doing on the ground is being translated to what investors want to see in their investments. So in the we, we identified that there is this um, emergence of, of ESG, particularly with the uh, increase in the amount of social media we see. Uh, we've, we thought that this would only get bigger and bigger. And, and you know, frankly, we've, we've been right. And I think it's going to get bigger from here. Um, investors are adding this additional layer of screening, ESG screening, when they're evaluating their investment opportunities. Um, sovereign wealth funds and some of the major investors like BlackRock, for example, um, they've started to blacklist industries. Um, they've come out with certain sectors that they won't invest in. And, uh, and for the ones that they are investing in, they're placing a, a, a pretty big standard to make sure that their investments are performing well from an E, S, and G perspective. Um, so I don't, I don't see this disappear. I only see this getting bigger. Um, and then you've got third-party service providers, basically the rating agencies that are um, another group of, of research analysts that we have to engage in as an industry. Again, to make sure we've got proper disclosure, uh, we've got 
policies and procedures and programs that align with what our stakeholders are demanding from us and making sure that, you know, this is, you know, we're not perfect. This is a journey and making sure that we, uh, we have a plan in place uh, to continue to get better. And how do you see ESG evolving over the next few years and how, how is Oceana Gold approaching ESG? Yeah, no, another great question, Rob. I mean, the investment community, you know, they've added this additional ESG screening, um, and I engage quite frequently with investors, uh, our largest investors, including BlackRock, on how they are uh, viewing ESG. What are they looking for from us specifically or from the industry? And I think they're also trying to figure out how does ESG translate into being an investment opportunity? It's very easy to, I mean, it's not, it's not easy, but it's, it's understood that to make an investment decision, you're looking at the financial performance of a company, you know, where, what it's doing today and where it's going to go tomorrow uh, to make sure that it's a financially sound business that you're investing in. ESG, I think a lot of investors have struggled in terms of translating how that performance then impacts the, uh, the bottom line, um, what sort of metrics they need to put in place uh, to make sure there's a good balance with investing in companies that have strong financial performance with companies that have strong ESG performance. So I'd say that as, as this sort of evolves, I think the methodologies will uh, start to improve. I think investors I know are working on these methodologies. So I think we'll find um, some, some better ways or easier ways for investors to, to be able to make that decision. Yeah. Um, I've spoken to a number of pension funds uh, in Canada and, and abroad where they're relying on third-party uh, rating agencies like the MSCI, for example. And they told me they're at some point they believe that they're, they, they will set a threshold uh, in terms of um, MSCI rating or another third-party rating. And if their investments are below that threshold, then they won't invest in them. And so for the gold industry, um, I've heard, you know, using MSCI as a standard, I heard that some of these pension funds are looking to set a pretty high bar, you know, with a B, B plus rating. Um, that only gives you a handful of gold companies to invest in, including Oceana. So for us, we, um, you know, we are one of only a few gold companies that have an A rating. Um, with the MSCI, where we're actually top five in, in some other rating agencies as well, like Sustainalytics and, and Vigio. So we've been at it for a number of years um, in terms of translating the good work we're doing on the ground with the, the work, or basically with, with what the rating agencies and the investors want to see from us. Mm. So that strategy continues to evolve as the industry evolves. Um, so a lot of it has to do with, with being very transparent with our stakeholders. It's uh, being engaged with our investors, you know, speaking to them on a regular basis, engaging with these third-party um, rating agencies like MSCI and Sustainalytics, et cetera, and being a, an active voice in the different industry groups that we talked about uh, earlier. So the World Gold Council, which you mentioned, uh, they launched the responsible gold mining principles last year. Uh, so the member companies have, have agreed to implement these principles over the next two or three years. Uh, we, we are already doing a lot of what, was, uh, what, what these principles um, require of us. And in fact, we're actually the chair of the World Gold Council ESG Task Force. So that gives us an opportunity to really lead 
uh, what we believe is very important for our industry. Yeah. And with ESG, do you think companies, and I suppose talk about gold companies, are they just slow to react to enforcing more ECSG policies or are they just not getting it? Is it, and obviously if the rating agencies are getting more involved, surely the standards will raise and they would obviously have to adapt and adapt quicker. Um, just wonder if you can comment around that from, from what you say. Yeah, I mean, our, I think our industry was a little bit slow to, um, to see this, I've called, I referred to it as a tsunami. Yep. I think they've been slow to react to it. Um, again, I think the industry, a lot of our peer companies do a very good job when it comes to ENS e e in particular. Um, and, you know, the, the, the area that everybody has, has needed to sort of um, lift their game on has been how we disclose the good work we're doing and doing it together as, a, as an industry and not as individual companies. So I think there was, I'm not sure if it was denial. I think it was more just sort of playing catch up and how does, what does this really mean? Is this for real? I've heard this before. You know, do we need to change anything? You know, let's kind of wait and see. And then again, uh, it's become the buzzword in the last two years. And, and I feel that the industry is just playing catch up now. Yeah. We've had a, we've had an ESG strategy for five, six years, which is why we're only one of, I think, four gold companies that has an A rating. So I suppose companies weren't necessarily focusing on it, but you'll probably see it will be a necessity to focus on on the on this to obviously improve improve standards, improve your rating, which obviously can affect a number of a number of other things. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I believe in our sector. I believe our sector does a lot of good, mm. um, but we're not portrayed that way by social media or the media. We're portrayed yeah. as, as climate deniers and climate criminals, as I was called as I was walking into um, the, uh, the dinner gala at the Minds and Money event last year by the, uh, the protesters. Yeah. And that's, that's the perception. A lot of people are just not doing their own homework to, to realize that the industry is, is doing a lot of good things. The luxuries we have in this world are, is because of mining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to be able to even do this podcast is, is a result of, you know, the mining that's taken place. Yeah. Um, and mining is, is, an, is an essential industry. It's an essential business. Yeah. I think our industry, and it's, this sort of goes back to your first question, I think the industry, we've been ashamed to promote the good things that we're doing, the jobs we've created. You know, we, we, we have kept quiet about all these things. And I think we, we absolutely need to promote what we do. Yeah. And do you, do you think they've withheld from promoting the industry because of, I, I mean, I, w I, was in, I was in Melbourne for the, uh, for the conference where there was obviously a lot of protesters outside. So do you think mining companies and like the larger mining companies, do you, you said they've been holding back. Do you think they're obviously doing that on purpose because they don't want to draw that, draw that, that attention, even though that, that attention is there, obviously, as we see at some of the conferences. So do you, do you feel that they need to sort of just not bypass them, but need to increase that awareness? Because obviously I, I believe mining has got a brand image issue. Um, and, and from obviously what you're saying, 
we're trying to we're not showcasing what what mining is really about and it's not everything that is portrayed in the media so do you think what mining companies should do is really push forward with promoting the industry at, 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 i say at all costs but so it gets the message across yeah absolutely absolutely i think the the concern individual companies have is if they sort of have the louder voice they'll get the attention of these groups um, these anti-mining groups and that's what they are they're anti-mining they're not for anything else other than to stop resource extraction and you're not going to please them no matter what you do unless mining was unless mining just goes which is never going to go yeah absolutely absolutely they want to put they want to put us back into the dark ages um but still maintain their cell phones and and travel (laughs) yeah Yeah. Um, and it's you know it's it's unfortunate right i mean they're not accountable to anything they say which is why there's a lot of misinformation on the industry uh, which is why they're using images of some of the bad players and you know painting everybody with that same brush uh, and this is why it's so important for us as an industry to promote the good things that we're doing. Let's balance the um, misinformation with facts. You know, let's let's get that out there. Let's promote what we're doing as an as an industry. Mm-hmm. The issue with individual companies doing that is we will draw the ire of some of these groups. And this is why, again, why I believe that we need to do this as an industry. We mm-hmm. need a voice of you know whether it's the World Coal Council or. Uh, ICMM or whatever groups that are out there have them promote the industry as opposed to us sticking our necks out for our individual companies yeah but we frankly you know Oceana for example we don't have the budgets to um, to launch the, the sort of social media campaign that the other sides do mm. uh, we don't nearly have as many followers as they do um, so it's that's why it's important as an industry we do it together yeah. and and not be shy not hold back yeah. On, on the good things we're doing. Yeah. Do you think an, uh, a separate body needs to be formed where there will be a core core group of people really, and whether that comes from people from industry, from a mining company, maybe a representative from a certain amount of mining companies out there and have a group where they can, their main focus is to improve the image and branding of the mining industry and then pull in some guys say from the the, the gold council um as as experts in that particular field but do you think they should have a core set of people whose main objective is to promote and brand mining obviously in a positive way and educate the world that this is an industry that is here to stay it's been around for years um and it just needs to be conveyed to the world because a lot of people i would say the majority of people that are outside of mining don't actually understand what mining is about yeah yeah no i I do believe that we um we need to have those that type of organization i think they exist i just think they need to maybe expand their scope um to to add that layer of promotion for the industry again we're not we're not a perfect industry Mm. Uh, there's there's lots of improvements that we need to make as an as an industry as individual companies um, and, and it's you know, part of disclosure is to be able to recognize where the limitations are. You know, we do these things well, but these are the areas we need to do better in. Um, you know, tailing storage facility, for example, it became a big issue when there was the, the two major incidents in Brazil. Yep. And a lot of investors were, were uh, blown away with, with what happened and concerned that, 
a lot of the mining companies or mining industry or oil and gas industry have these large tailing storage facilities and wanted to make sure that they were, we were managing our risks. Uh, I know the Church of England was very active in trying to get the ICMM and some of the, its members, as well as other mining companies, companies, including ourselves, to respond to a questionnaire of theirs. And we were happy to do that. And the industry was happy to do that. So I, I believe groups like the ICMM exist. I think we can expand their scope to be able to promote what we do as an industry. Um, and again, discuss some of the limitations. The World Gold Council is a good body for the gold industry. And maybe there's a partnership there uh, with the ICMM. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we can do this together. Yeah. Um, obviously, we've been speaking about, and obviously during the time of this recording, we're in uh, uh, the pandemic and COVID-19. Um, and we all know what's happened economically uh, during the, obviously the, the whole globe and the impacts that this is having. Um, how, how is the impact, how is this impacting um, the mining industry from your perspective and also in relation to Oceana Gold? Yeah, I mean, it's impacted all of us. No one's spared from what's what's happened with, with this COVID crisis. Um, you know, we're both, you know, we're talking how we're both in lockdown and have been in lockdown for yeah. uh, the past two months. Uh, but the diff there's different, um, like the situations in different jurisdictions. Um, I mean, there's there's differences there. Um, so, you know, you being in the UK, us, me being in Canada, there's, there's differences in our respective mm. jurisdictions. Uh, but mining hasn't been spared. Uh, mining has been impacted as well. Uh, here in Canada, you know, depending on which province you're in, they have had different protocols. Uh, in Quebec, mining industry had to shut down for, um, I think it was at least two weeks. Uh, I was deemed non-essential and had to shut down. Uh, in my province here in Ontario, it was deemed essential and allowed to operate with some restrictions. Uh, in the U.S., where we have one mining operation in South Carolina, each state had a different situation in terms of numbers and cases and testing and protocols. Um, we immediately put in some very strict protocols at our Hale Gold Mine in South Carolina. Uh, the number of cases was increasing around us, but we didn't have, and we still don't have any positive cases of COVID, but we still, even to this day, continue to operate with some restrictions. Yep. So from that operation, from that perspective, it's there, there's been you know some impact in terms of how you get on get onto site and how you leave leave the site, uh, plus all the other social distancing and disinfecting that we're doing. Um, we have two mines in New Zealand, and New Zealand was uh, probably one of the first countries to implement some draconian measures, uh, which has paid off. Uh, so they took some very drastic measures right at the beginning. They shut almost everything down for five weeks. Uh, mining was deemed non-essential, um, but we we got an exemption for for our McRae's mine, so where we could operate on a limited basis uh, for technical reasons. And then we were building a project at Wahi, which we had to shut down. Uh, so New Zealand, with those measures that they they put in place, after the five weeks, they they went from a level four down to a level three, where they allowed some businesses to open up. And then uh, just on the weekend, they dropped it down to I think level one. Uh, which basically is life as usual because they have zero cases. Um, Australia's, you know, they've contained it as well too. Uh, both countries have closed their borders, and um, and so it's and uh, the mining operations haven't been impacted in Australia. But then coming back to the, sort of this hemisphere, you know, South America has had a number of issues still uh, with the spread of the virus. 
which has impacted mining operations in Brazil and Peru and, and Chile. Uh, Mexico uh, deemed mining non-essential and it shut down for a month. Uh, I believe some of those mining companies have, uh, well, they've lifted some of those restrictions and, and those operations are, are, are returning. And then there's other operations even in the U.S. that have had to shut down and are still shut down. So mining hasn't been spared. Um, yeah. The supply of commodities has been impacted because of these shutdowns. Um, copper was making a good run up until today, you know, with supply concerns and, and the fact that China is looking to, uh, well, basically it was coming out of its, its COVID crisis and looking to build again. So the demand for copper was, was going up and I believe it's still going up. Um, and then the su supply chain was something that we were being asked quite frequently by investors. Mm. What sort of disruptions were we facing with supply chains? Yeah. Uh, so I don't think any mining company can say that there were no issues from that perspective. Mm. Um, I think for us, Oceana specifically, um, you know, we, we have a pretty good supply chain in place and um, we, we've got a good stock of materials and equipment. So it hasn't really impacted us. Uh, and we proactively managed that. But certainly a lot of mining companies were impacted with supplies that were coming out of China or even in the U.S. when it was dependent on um, on other industries that were shut down because the states had put in uh, stay-at-home orders. Yeah. Um, and following on from that, um, I've been dealing with a lot of companies and operations in Africa. And it seemed to me there obviously was they were affected, but a lot of them had managed that and continuing to work and continuing to operate. Um, funny enough, I spoke to um, someone from South Africa today, and it was interesting what he said. He said, um, they've, they've only just recently gone back to site and only 50% of the workforce is going back. Anyone over either 55 or 56 isn't allowed to go back at this, at this particular time. Um, so they put a restriction on age because of that higher vulnerability of someone at, at that age and older, um, which is interesting, which I haven't heard, I haven't heard anyone say before. So um, that, that was interesting to hear that. Yeah, we've had something similar as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, so when, when uh, New Zealand had reduced their alert level from four to three, uh, we were allowed to resume full operations at McCrae's, but anyone who was deemed high risk, so whether they were in that age group or yep. they had some sort of underlying health problems, would still have to stay at home and be isolated. Um, so again, those restrictions have all been lifted because New Zealand has no cases. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there's a number of operations where they have those types of restrictions in place. Yeah. Um, do you believe there, there are additional risks and conservatively opportunities for the sector and for Oceana Gold specifically? Yeah, I mean, we, we keep hearing on the news about second waves. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think that's still a risk that, you know, COVID hasn't gone anywhere. I believe, you know, there's a, a lot of countries, uh, you know, dozens of countries, uh, dozens of companies working on a vaccine. And I think until there's a vaccine, uh, the threat of a second wave still exists. Um, so that, that, that is obviously something that uh, we can't ignore. We need to make sure that we maintain the strict protocols we have in place. Um, to, to ensure there's no spread of infection or any infection. I mean, the health and safety of our workforce is and we need to make sure everyone, every single person is, is healthy and well. Um, so we'll continue to have those protocols in place, and I believe the mining industry will as well. Yeah. Um, again, to make sure there's no second or third wave, um, and see, we'll see where things are at with respect to the vaccine. 
Um, but it does, you know, conversely, it does create opportunities as well. I mean, countries that are dependent on industries like tourism, uh, like New Zealand, like the Philippines, need to look at other industries to, um, to kickstart their economies. And that's exactly what those two countries are doing, which, which directly tie into uh, to us. In New Zealand, its major industry is tourism. And the borders are still closed, even though they've lifted the restrictions they had in country, their borders are still shut. And you know, who, who knows how long it'll take before we get back to normal, if we ever get back to normal. Um, but the tourism industry is gonna take, probably in my opinion, two to three years uh, to, to get back to where it was. So for countries like New Zealand that are so heavily dependent on that sector, they need to look at other sectors. And they've talked about that. They've, they've looked at other industries. They wanna know um, which, which industries or which sectors they need to sort of support to, uh, to kickstart the economy. And they've identified construction and mining as two sectors where they can look at streamlining permitting processes uh, to be able to put them into operation sooner and again, be a source of revenue. Uh, Philippines, same thing. It's, um, its biggest uh, percentage of GDP is overseas remittances and the border is still shut there. And uh, it is a major part of their GDP and, and the president recognizes that they need to do something to, um, uh, to make up for that shortfall. So they, they've created this task force, an economic task force, uh, led by the finance secretary, who's a, a former mining executive, uh, to look at okay, how we're going to kickstart the economy. And mining, we believe, is, has been identified as one of those sectors that, uh, that can help them out. So, I mean, these are just two examples. I believe that countries around the world will be looking to different industries that can help uh, kickstart their, their, their economies. I um, want to slowly wrap this now, uh, up now. I've got a couple more questions. Um, what's the future for Oceana Gold? And I suppose looking over the next maybe three to five years, as a, as a maximum? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we, we've got a pretty robust organic growth pipeline. Uh, with, with the four operations, um, you know, our company will produce between 500 to 600,000 ounces of gold uh, plus copper. Uh, with the organic growth opportunities that we do have, um, so particularly at Wahi, which is the asset we bought from Newmont, uh, we've talked about something called the Wahi District Study, which we're in the final stages of completing. Uh, which will daylight the opportunity that exists there. So Wahi has traditionally been around 100, uh, 125,000 ounce a year producer. Uh, we're looking at taking that asset to about 200,000 ounces uh, a year production and extending the mine life um, well into the 20, mid 2030s and beyond. Uh, we bought this asset in 2015, which and it had a three year mine life. And we, we added to that, and now we've got a mine life out to 2030. And now through the study, we're looking at expanding it even further. So that, uh, you know, not only will we get the production growth, we get the mine life growth and the margin growth just from Wahi. Yeah. Um, in the U.S. and South Carolina at Hale, we have an expansion uh, project there. Uh, and at our McCray's operation back in New Zealand, we're also looking to extend the mine life. So for us, it's going from being a five to 600,000 ounce a year producer to being somewhere over 700,000 ounces a year with mine lives at each of the operations uh, at 10 plus years. So for us, that's why we focus on organic growth. We don't need to look at what else is out there. We can grow our business internally uh, and that's the best way to create long-term value for shareholders. Yeah, 
certainly. Um, a lot, one last question. Um, what does mining mean to you? Yeah, it's, it's sort of what we talked about um, earlier. You know, it's, it is enabling the things we want to do as a society. It's, it's to allow for the things that we, we need, you know, the essentials for, you know, dishwashers and washing machines and vehicles, internet, you know, all these things that mining has contributed to. It's, it's to allow for these things to, to continue. It's to allow for um, technologies to advance. I mean, I, you know, grew up through some of the shuttle launches uh, in the 80s into the 90s, but I was still blown away by that rocket launch uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week. Yeah. Yeah. And these aren't possible without mining. Uh, so the advancement of our, of our planet, of our race, you know, we're looking to invest in new technologies like uh, battery powered vehicles, um, renewable energy, all that requires mining. It requires us extracting minerals from the ground and, and pr processing or refining it into the products we use today and the products we'll be using tomorrow. Yeah. So it's a critical part of society. And it's something that I'm, a prou I'm proud of being a part of. Okay, so I really appreciate your time um, in doing this podcast. If our audience wants to reach out to you, obviously we've spoken a lot about M&A and S um, ESG. Um, if your audience wants to reach out to you and ask any questions, how can they go about doing that? And are you on any social media channels? Yeah, so Ocean's got uh, social media. We've got a Facebook account and Twitter account. Uh, to get a hold of me, I would suggest just emailing me at ir at oceanagold.com. Uh, that would be the best way to get a hold of uh, me or or someone from the team. Um, and yeah, we're we're happy to to talk about different issues. I mean, yeah. if it's any of the things we talked about or anything else, we're happy to uh, discuss those as well. Yeah. But I appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast, Rob. I yeah, really good. No, work. yeah, no worries. And I, you brought up quite a good, quite a lot of important issues here, and, and I'm sure the audience will take a lot away from that, and hopefully. Um, learn something and maybe implement some of some of the things that we've spoken about into their business and into their day-to-day -day lives which really is what this podcast is about it's educating educating the audience um, and the mining community um, and hopefully just improving standards across the board so um, really appreciate your time um, and thank you for listening and until next time happy mining thanks for listening to dig deep the mining podcast if there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining!